Welcome to the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and become one of our friends on Facebook, facebook.com slash radiodetectives. Well, before we do get started, um, I do want to uh, just first of all let everyone know we do have a new uh, microphone, and uh, this one is a Logitech uh, headset. I'll talk a little bit more about it, uh, but I'd love your feedback, see if this works better. Also, I do want to remind you, you can support the show, support.greatdetectives.net. Now it's time for today's episode of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. The original air date is April 16th of 1949. And the title is Heat Wave. It was hot and still. An August night in the middle of April. But that didn't matter to the striptease dancer in the golden mask. Because murder made her blood run cold the night the heat wave struck. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Heat Wave. only three weeks old, but the sun bore down on Los Angeles with the middle of the summer vengeance. At noon, it was 102 in the shade, and by 3.30, with doors, window, and shirt collar all open as far as they would go, I still sweltered in the kind of heat that wilts both your clothes and your character. So I tried to make sense from the crisp words of a telegram I just received from one Karen Driscoll Jr., no less, of Knob Hill, San Francisco. It told me to go to the Palace Theater, a burlesque house on Main Street. Watch the performance of the featured dancer, get backstage, and take a close look at her face. Then meet the 7 o'clock plane from San Francisco and report what I'd seen to Miss Driscoll, uh, Junior. It was a strange request coming from Knob Hill, but the enclosed $50 money order wasn't kidding, so I perspired my way down to the Palace Theater. There, instead of the usual 30 beautiful girls, 30 sign over the marquee, was a 50-foot gold banner that screamed, The Heat Wave, Who Is She?, and the showcase cards that led to the box office were all a circle of question marks that centered a woman wearing a strange gold mask and little else. I bought a ticket and went inside in time for the tail end of the matinee. A baggy pants comedian was just winding up a corny south of the border routine as I sat down. out of an oversized sombrero in a hybrid hat dance and then galloped off under the wings. After reminding myself that I was here on business, I sat down again as a personality boy in brown flannel and a yellow shirt stepped into the spotlight with his arms raised. Ladies and gentlemen, you're now privileged to witness one of the most unusual and breathtaking spectacles ever presented. 
day. The moment you will see her, the woman of mystery, performing exotic rites to the pagan sun god of the Incas, exactly as they were performed 3,000 years ago in the strange temples of the Andes. But who is she? Who is this woman? And who knows what secrets lie behind her mask of gold? The Palace Theater presents the masked marvelous, the beautiful, the dazzling, the mysterious Heat Wave! had to admit it. This was special. She was the color of alabaster and as supple as a cat, and as she moved across the stage, she got more convolutions out of her two arms than a restless octopus could with eight. Her costume from the neck down was about as sheer as a new spider web, and above that and covering her face completely was a gold mask, grotesque and glistening. As the dance headed for a climax designed to knock the cash customers right out of their seats, I uh, reminded myself again that I was here on business. So I walked down the side aisle to a door that led backstage and went through it just as the dance ended. And while the audience tore the house down begging for more, the heat wave tossed a couple of kisses through a gold mask and ran to a dressing room. I started after her and was halfway there when a bulging hulk in a shark-skin suit that measured 6'6 in every direction lumbered casually out of the shadows and took a bulldog stance with his back against the dressing room door. I started picking up fast ad-libs and was hot for a switch on the eager reporter gag when... The baggy pants comic slid up beside me. Hey, chum. Huh? They're asking for Loda Mayhem if you try to get to the heat wave past Jesse there. Jesse? He the man mountain in the sharkskin suit? Yeah, with orders to break bones. Oh. Uh, maybe I can help you out. Good. But how come? Hey, yeah, let's go around to the side. Uh, you're a reporter, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, Inky Barnes can use a little publicity, too, you know. Uh, hold it here by the door. Uh... Now, what is it you have to know? Well, all I want's one look at her face. Yeah, that's a cinch. <laughs> I said I'd help you out, and I will. Like this. Yeah. Right out there in the alley. And don't come back before midnight, goon. You can see her face then when she takes her mask off. I should have known better, but all I wanted at the moment was to kick the slack out of a pair of baggy pants. So I bounced back up the steps, jerked the door open, and ran head on into three square yards of sharkskin suit. It was Jesse. You ain't welcome around here, bum, so stay out. Have you got it? Okay, Jesse, let's say I've got it. Yeah. Also, don't drop it as you walk away. I was glad to remember that I had a client to meet at the airport. So in spite of the fact that the heat wave's face was still a well-kept secret behind a gold mask, I took Jesse's good advice and left. When the plane taxied to a stop at the airline's gate, it was 7 o'clock sharp. And as the passengers unloaded a tall, sinuous brunette with arched eyebrows, an imperial gesture and a hat that had kept some imaginative milliner out of the red for several months had to be Miss Karen Driscoll, Jr. I introduced myself, ushered her to the cocktail lounge, and when a Gibson sparkled in front of each of us, she got down to business. Well, Marlowe, did you see her? Uh, yes and no. I have a photograph here. Look, is this the same girl? Uh, oh, it's a headshot. It's pretty, but no help, Miss Driscoll. You didn't see her face then? No, look, Junior, do I refund your money now or start asking questions? Don't be ridiculous. 
I must know who that girl is, and I'll tell you why. This picture is of my sister, Midge Driscoll. Oh? Think your sister's the heat wave? Yes. Oh, she's doing it to humiliate me, Marlowe. Tomorrow, I'm being married to a man whose family is distinguished in diplomatic circles. No. And this burlesque heat wave woman is, is to be revealed at midnight tonight. If she is my sister, can you imagine what the papers will do with that story tomorrow morning? Yeah, some wedding present. But your own sister, I don't get it. Why? Oh, it's an old hate, Marlowe. Midge lost a love affair, and I won it years ago. She's never gotten over it. Oh. And she's done things before. The day I was elected president of the Metropolitan Club, she faked an elopement with my chauffeur. The night of my engagement party, she rode a horse into the flamingo room. A brawl started, and she spent the night in jail. Last yeah, I see year, what you I... mean, but this heat wave's got a lot of talent for burlesque. A lot of experience in a line. In fact, uh, <laughs> she's a sensation, let's face it. So what makes you think it's Major, huh? Oh, no. I found the name Tracy Leake in her apartment in San Francisco. He's the manager of the Palace Theater here. I learned that from a newspaper story in which Josh Freeman... Josh Freeman? Yes, the big producer. Oh. He's supposed to be bargaining with Lake for his heat wave discovery. Oh, she's done a thorough advanced publicity job, all right. What if she turns out to be your sister? What then? That's my business. I know how to make money talk, Marlowe. And I've more than enough for a polite but firm conversation. Your job is merely to find out for sure between now and midnight... If my sister actually is this heat wave, I'll take care of everything else. Karen Driscoll, Jr. gave me her local phone number, then got up, cursed the hot night, bid me hurry, and summoned a taxi. All with a regal wave, one hand. And I was left to my own devices in something less than five hours to make them work in, so I drove back to the Palace Theater, which was stalling until midnight by showing a triple feature movie. Paid another admission and slipped backstage again. It was deserted except the two electricians tied up in pinochle under the switchboard light. The heat wave's dressing room was locked. Jesse was nowhere in sight, and I was about to leave again when I heard a familiar voice cooing into a dark yeah. note that turned out hey, to be baby. a phone booth. Say, uh, it was Hinky Barnes, the baggy pants comic. Beauty, beauty to the beautiful, you know. Hey, hey uh, listen, baby. About that other deal, did you talk to her? She won't. You sure? Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, look, I got to talk to you. How about dinner? You can't? Well, I know you got things on your mind, but... Yeah, honey, I know you're tired. Well, okay. Don't worry, things are going to be okay. You'll see. Bye-bye, baby. Hey, Hinky. Oh, you again. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that brings us up to date, even Stephen. Now, get this. First, I'm not a reporter. Second, I represent Josh Freeman's office. And third, I haven't got all night. You... You mean Josh Freeman, the big producer? Know any other Josh Freeman? I want to talk to Tracy Lake about the heat wave, but I want to see her before I talk. Is she here? No. She won't be back until the big midnight show. Where's Tracy, then? He's home. At the Toppet House on Wilshire. About two blocks down from Arthur Murray's. Hey, but listen. Uh, tell me something. Is, uh... Is Josh going to make a star out of her? With a talent like hers? What do you think, Inky? I left Hinky with his mouth hanging open in the fire of ambition burning like an alcohol lamp in each eye as I drove out to the Toppet House on Wiltshire. Leaning on the bell at Tracy Lake's apartment, I got ready to be a hard-hitting, practical-minded producer's right-hand man. Yeah, what is it? Tracy, my name's Marlowe out of Josh Freeman's office. Caught the heat waves act this afternoon, willing to wrap her up and take her home right now. 
but not sight unseen. Wait, Who is she? Wait a minute. Huh? You say you're from Josh Freeman, Marlowe? That's right. And I got a blank check right here in my pocket. Authorized to fill it out unless you're completely unreasonable. I see. Well, now, look, Marlowe, this heat wave thing has gone over a thousand percent better than any of us expected. Yeah, I know, I know, but you see... The uh, price is high already, and the bids have only started to come in. Oh, uh, excuse me. I just opened a bottle of Paul Masson over there. Help yourself, Marlowe. I'll be right back. A perfectly good telephone sat within an arm's reach of Lake, but instead he went down the hall to an extension and closed the door behind him. It was distinctly malpractice, but time was running out on me, so I picked up the phone and listened. Immediately. Fine. It goes to Miss Nita LaVar, 44 Edgewood Terrace. Oh, uh, close a card. Uh, don't worry, darling. You're my real heat wave. Sign it, Tracy. Lovely, lovely. Uh, and the engagement ring? Uh, the sunburst? Yeah, that's for Miss LaVar, too. But deliver that to the theater at midnight. You got it? Yes, indeed, sir. Uh, thank you. And congratulations. Uh, Tracy Lake and Nita LaVar. Who might she be? Sorry, Marlowe, a little personal business. Now, uh, you were saying... Yeah, yeah, I was saying I can hand you a nice fat check if this mass marvelous is really okay. You're building up to quite a surprise, Tracy. You must have something. <laughs> yes, indeed I have, old boy. Plenty. Yeah? I can't reveal the lady's name until midnight, All right, but all right, play coy. What's her background? Has she got class? Class? Marlowe, you wouldn't believe it. Not blue book stuff? Society girl in burlesque? Why, anything's possible, Marlowe. Sure, sure. She could even be from Knob Hill, huh? Yeah, like I said. Anything's possible, possible, sure. Okay, Tracy, that's what I wanted to find out. See you after the unveiling, and you got a great night for it. Oh, Marlo, uh, hmm? I suppose uh, Big Ed Peters is in on the deal as usual, along with Josh? Yeah, it's a regular Josh Freeman deal, just as usual. <laughs> See you later, Tracy. <laughs> This is Marlowe, Jr. I just wound up an interview with Tracy Lake. When I threw Knob Hill at him, he turned green. But it's not official yet. The odds are high that it's your sister Midge, all right, who's knocking him dead as the heat wave. I knew it. That horrible, vindictive little tramp. What else, Marlowe? Did you find out where she is? Yeah, yeah. She's going under the name of Needle Lavar and staying at 44 Edgewood Terrace near MacArthur Park. But listen, it's not positive yet, so I'm going there to check right now. Where are you calling from, Marlowe? A phone booth at a closed gas station out here on Wilshire. But I... Oh... Uh, I am about to start earning that fee of yours, baby. 300 pounds of muscle in a sharkskin suit just walked up. Goodbye. Hello, Sonny. Well, my Piltdown pal. So the boss was right. You're just a cheap, nosy reporter, after all. It's cramped in there, ain't it? But you're not getting out, bub. Uh, now, wait a minute, Jesse. It's a hot night. Let's not work up a sweat, huh? Don't you worry about that. Mr. Lake pegged you as a phony nosy, and that's bad. What do you mean, phony? You said Big Ed Peters was in on a deal with Josh Freeman. All right, what about it? Big Ed's been dead for 12 years. And you know what? He's still going to look better than you are 30 seconds from now. Oh! In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, tomorrow night, in order of their appearance, 
You'll hear Joseph Cotton, Ozzie and Harriet, Jack Benny and his gang, Amos and Andy, Sam Spade, Lum and Abner, Helen Hayes, Eve Arden, and hold tight now, a special show with Bing Crosby, Bob Hope, Claudette Colbert, and Don over most of these same CBS network stations. And Jack Benny with Mary, Phil, Dennis, Don, and Rochester will be heard over them all. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Heat Wave. When the little man in big iron boots who were kicking at the lining of my temples finally quit, and I dragged myself back up to the vertical, Gargantua was gone. I was sure of only two things. Tracy Lake did not know that I was anything other than a nosy reporter, and second and more important, it was time for me to head for Edgewood Terrace and the lady known as Nita Lavar. As I started for the front door of number 44, which was an all-alone stucco and a tile L-shape that showed a single light, the little men in iron boots went to work again. It reminded me that it might be healthier if I first found out exactly what was waiting behind the map marked welcome. So I made a wise circle around to the back, then in closer past the whispering huddle of palms through a flagstone patio that led to a short flight of also flagstone steps. But there, when I was only a few feet from an uncurtained window, I stopped at the sight of something I hadn't expected. It was the body of a woman lying in a twisted heap at the bottom of the stairs. When I moved closer, I saw that the ugly cut on the side of her head that had killed her had come from the jagged edge of the last step. I also saw that the woman was Midge Driscoll. Next to the body, there was an overturned crushed sprinkling can, which meant that she could have fallen to her death accidentally. Also, it could have meant that if murdered, a killer had overturned and crushed the sprinkling can as well. I was somewhere between the two thoughts when I heard a car break to a stop in front of the house. Then high heels on a cement walk. I quietly moved around to where I could see something tall and blonde who, in a better light, would have been better looking. Good evening. What? Who's that? Name's Philip Marlowe. Mean anything? Nothing. Then try this. I'm a friend of Midge Driscoll's. Midge? I never heard of anyone by that name. I'll bet. <clears throat> Step up a little closer, honey. Now, wait a minute, Mr. Bright Eyes. I... Midge! Yeah, yeah, Midge. Uh, in Driscoll. Name you never heard of, remember? Now, what do you say? Do we play it straight? Yeah, yeah. I'm Nita LaVar, Mr. Marlowe. Baby, you're getting in deeper by the minute, and by that I specifically mean that Midge Driscoll here and Nita LaVar are one and the same. Oh, you're crazy. I know my own name. It is and always has been Nita LaVar. That's Midge Driscoll. All right, since you've grown so cooperative, maybe you can tell me why she's dead. Well, could be that she fell down those stairs. An hour before her unmasking is the heat wave. Heat wave? You know an awful lot, mister. How come? It's strictly business. I'm a private detective with client. We'll talk about that later. Right now it's time to go in and call the police. And don't tell me you can't find your key. <laughs> don't worry, private detective. I won't. Here, catch. Got it. Now let's get inside. But let's not call the police, huh? Why not? Are you afraid that they'll... Oh, I see what you and that pretty little gun mean. <laughs> I'm glad. I'd hate to have to shoot you. Why, one a night you quota? Don't be funny. I didn't kill Midge. Then why no police? For a very good reason. Until tonight, Marlowe, I've been the heat wave. 
the substitute heat wave for Milady there who didn't have the time or the talent for the build-up to the great joke she was going to pull on her sister. You mean you were the one I saw today? The one everybody saw every day. And liked. Liked so much that business boomed and all the heads in the front row weren't bald. Which has what to do with me calling the police? In general, everything. In particular, my career. I tried to get that crazy kid there to back off and let me go on with the act that she'd kill after one performance, but no. Miss Bunny Money Banks wouldn't hear of it. Now that she's dead, you're in, is that it? Solid. And that's also the reason why I don't want to spend the next two hours talking to cops. So go on, put the key in the lock, turn it, open the door, and walk in. What happens then? Then, Mr. Marlowe, we call Tracy Lake and arrange for a playmate for you. Playmate named Jesse, maybe. A playmate named Jesse. And no, maybe. When we got inside, Needle Laval handled a prisoner with a finesse of a Marine Guard detachment, took my gun, threw it across the room, put me into a faraway straight-back chair and got through to Tracy Lake without once taking her baby blue eyes off me. Then when she told the man she called Darling all about Midge's death, which could have been for my benefit, she placed a rush order for the monster. After that, she hung up, sat down, lit a cigarette and waited. But a second later, she was back on her feet. When I said that friend Jesse was fast, she said I should shut up and more. Listen, Marlowe, you do exactly as I say. Coming! Now stay right where you are and don't so much as open your mouth. Who is it? It's me, Nita. Hinky. Oh, good. Come on in, Hinky. Hello, Nita. Hi. I just happened to be going by, and since I knew it was Midge's night, I thought... And never mind what you thought. Just come in and listen. It isn't Midge's night, Hinky. It's mine. And don't ask questions now. Here. Ooh. What's the gun for, Nita? What's the matter? A private detective, but public nuisance named Marlowe. Marlowe, a detective? Mm-hmm. He told me he was from Josh Freeman's office. Ah, he was lying. Now, get this, Hinky. Midge Driscoll is out and back, dead. But why... I don't know why, and I care less. But Marlowe here is crazy for calling the cops, which would leave me at midnight doing my big number for the desk sergeant. <laughs> Great. So use that gun, see, and hold him here until Jesse shows up, which should be any minute. Now, goodbye, and be careful, Hinky. Bright boy. Gentle soul, huh, Barnes? Never mind, Milo. Save the gap for Jesse. He's a great listener. I doubt if he'll give me the time, considering that I know it's an odds-on bet it'll be a couple of slugs in my belt buckle before he's even in the room. Jesse kill you? Why would he do that? Because he works for Tracy Lake. And Tracy Lake has to kill me, Barnes. I know he's a murderer. Midge Driscoll was murdered? You sure of that? Just about. Doesn't figure any other way. Nita herself told me how much this chance means to her and how hard she tried to get Midge to back off. Yeah, but Tracy, how does he tie in? Two ways. The money he'll get out of the show continuing indefinitely, and better than that, the fact that he and Nita are going to be married. Those two get married? You're nuts, Marlowe. No, no, it's straight, Barnes. I know because I overheard Tracy talking to a jeweler about the ring he ordered. Now, you mind if I have a cigarette? Hey, Barnes, can I reach for a cigarette? Uh, Oh, yeah, okay. Hey, hey, Marlowe, you sure of this? Everything you just said, I mean, about them getting married and all? Sure I am. Why, a little disgusted with your buddies? Yeah, a little. So as of right now, you can do as you want. I'm leaving. No, you're not, Mr. Barnes. Hey, Jesse, hey, hey, Jesse, don't shoot. I won't, Mr. Barnes, unless, of course, you or Buster try to get out of here. Oh, who, me, Jesse? Yeah, you were going to let Marlowe go, Mr. Barnes. I don't think Mr. Lake would like that. I'm sure he wouldn't, Jesse. So why don't you just save everyone a lot of time and start pulling that trigger? Well, you can still see what you're doing. Hey, the light! Get going, Barnes! You, you dirty louse! I'll fix you! 
You'll never get out of here alive. Where? Where are you? Come on, talk. Where are you? Where are you? Answer me, you hear? Answer me. With pleasure. Oh, you stinking slime. I'll tear you apart if I get my hands on you. Which, Jesse boy, is the trick. And now for our meeting in a phone booth, flowers, your big ape, bars and all. I got some lights on and found my gun where Nita had tossed it when we first came in. I checked Jesse over once to make sure that he was neither dead nor too alive. Then I started for the door. But there, even as my hand closed over the knob, I stopped. A crazy thought from I don't know where wedging its way into my mind. I turned back toward the room and stared at the flower and vase strewn form of the ape that covered half the carpet. Then slowly the wedge broke through and there was light, lots of it. The kind in which I could see why Midge Driscoll had been murdered. And more important, why I had to get to the Palace Theater and needle a Lava before murder happened again. I lurched from the curb in front of Nita's at 20 minutes to 12. When I screeched to a stop downtown at the Palace without somehow hitting or being hit along the way, those 20 minutes were gone. And I was worried because midnight meant that Nita would already be on stage for the unmasking. I raced past the general at the door and then across the lobby and into the theater where I figured I could get down a side aisle of the wings. That was figuring wrong. Because fire laws notwithstanding, the place was strictly SRO and packed tighter than the seventh game World Series. Between the backs of perspiring necks, I could see that Nita, who was across stage from Tracy Lake himself and in the center of a single spotlight that could have opened a supermarket, was still masked. So while I prayed that Lake, who was winding up his spiel, would think of bigger and better adjectives, I ran back to the lobby and around to a flight of stairs that led to the first balcony, where over on one side and near the railing, I found an old man who was daddy to a trio of baby spots. And the one giant that was on Nita. I shoved him aside just as Lake finished and the maestro took over. And with one hand, I got a good grip on the 38 in my pocket, and with the other, the handle on the big spot. Hey, what are you doing? Hoping I'm wrong, Dad. But if not, hoping the gun I expect doesn't come from the wings, but. Hey, there. In that side balcony near the curtain, see it? Yeah, it's a gun, all right. Hey, that's Hinky Barn. Right. Let's give the funny man a big audience and lots of light. You're on, Barn. Watch out, he's gonna shoot at us. Yeah, and us at him. You got him! You got him! Music! Music! Play some music! Play some music! It was 20 minutes of bedlam. Police, music, and two quick numbers by Nita LeVar, all of whose shaking was not routine. Before the palace got back to the quiet business of being a burlesque house and the show went on. It was another hour and 20 minutes before it was all over and the theater was empty and dark except for a work light on the stage where Nita, Tracy Lake, and I were sitting in the middle of a papier-mâché Inca civilization. Well, Milo, the police say that Hinky's going to live for a while. Can't figure the guy. Never knew he felt that way about Nita here. Neither did I. I was always okay to him, and I knew he cared some, but that's as far as it went. With you, Nita, yeah. But with Hinky, it was something else. Something strong enough to make him kill Midge Driscoll so that Nita would get a big chance, eh, Milo? Mm-hmm. Well, when he found out through me that you two were going to be married, he... He realized that the murder he had committed was for nothing. And now he was going to make one count. So he turned on you, Nita. How did you find out in time to get to him before he could make a try for Nita? The way the guy sagged when I said you were going to be married told me all I had to know. But it was cinched by the American beauties draped around Jesse. American beauties? Flowers? Yeah, yeah. See, I remembered a phone call Hinky made. You, Nita, had been the lady he'd talked to and loved. From there on out, it was a little better than a shot in the dark. 
Two shots in the dark, Marlowe. <laughs> Good ones that are responsible for Nita still being here with her. Thanks, Marlowe. Yeah, Marlowe, thanks a lot. Don't mention it. After all, I was paid for my work, and besides... Eh, that dance you do, Nita... Belongs to posterity. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Good night. It was still hot in the city. I had no enthusiasm for further conversation and a very sticky feeling from head to foot. So I took care of Karen Driscoll Jr. in a fast telephone call and then pointed my car for my apartment. I couldn't help thinking of poor little Hinky Barnes, who brought laughter to everyone else, but could find no happiness for himself. He was like the man who went to see a doctor one day and said, Doctor, I can't laugh anymore. And the doctor said, Go and see Grock, the greatest clown of them all. If he can't make you laugh, there's no help for you. The man smiled and said, Thank you, doctor. You see, I am Grock. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Vivi Janis, Wilms Herbert, Ed Begley, Elsie Holmes, Barney Phillips, and Byron Kane. The special music is by Richard O'Ron. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... It started at dawn in a Los Angeles taxi and wound up that night on a cliff in the middle of the Pacific. All because of a Dutchman with 50,000 bucks a corpse in a lily pond and an oriental with a chauffeur who wanted a cloak made of nothing but feathers. In just about an hour from now, $50,000, the biggest jackpot in radio history, will be waiting CBS listeners from coast to coast on the Sing It Again program over most of these same CBS network stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Now, stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Welcome back. This wasn't one of my favorite episodes. It's kind of hard for me to put a finger on as to why. Certainly it wasn't a bad one. I'm not going to go all Emily Braddock matter on it. I have to say my favorite part of this one was actually the end with uh, Philip Marlowe telling that story. It was actually pretty profound and it went very well with the solution. All right, well, we have a couple housekeeping items. Now, first of all, this is, uh, I do want to say regarding the new headset, uh, it really is appreciated having this support uh, that allows us to uh, make sure we're giving folks the best listening experience possible. We just uh, got a lot of issues regarding the snowball, and I don't think it's because uh, snowball's a bad mic. It may just be my particular setup and configuration of systems. If you got more space or uh, uh, 
better sound equipment, uh, other than the Snowball, might work better. But even just playing back some of the uh, of my own audio as I'm recording, it sounds so much better. So unless there's major objection to the new uh, headset, uh, we'll keep with it. But we, we got a good number of complaints with the Snowball. So uh, the Snowball will go into mothballs uh, for now. Though uh, I'm going to keep it around because uh, when you're podcasting, stuff happens, mics break, and you need to have a spare around so that, as they say in the stage, the show can go on. Now, I want to talk about video theater for a moment. Coming up on Sunday, we're going to bring you a television episode of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. And I'm discussing it here because it's a somewhat uh, obscure chapter in the character's uh, history. Uh, Philip Marlowe did come to television as a regular television show from 1959 to 60 with Phil Carey in the title role of Philip Marlowe. Carey, in the last uh, 19 or 20 years of his life, was probably best known for his role on One Life to Live, the long-running uh, soap opera. The series is essentially a somewhat typical uh, late 50s, early 60s uh, detective show. And I have to say, that's not a bad thing. I love late 50s, early 60s detective shows. Peter Gunn and... Uh, Johnny Staccato and all those guys, uh, there's a, a certain feel to the show and Marlowe has it. Probably the most uniquely Marlowe thing was the special gun storage. And it also has a great opening. And I hope you enjoy it. There are only two of the 26 episodes, all of which are public domain, but only two are in public, in uh, circulation. And we'll play one of those for you uh, this month, and another one of those uh, further down the line. All right, well, that will do it for today. We will be back tomorrow with Nick Carter, Master Detective, and then join us next Wednesday for the adventures of Philip Marlowe. In the meantime, send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter, Radio Detectives, and become one of our friends on Facebook, facebook.com slash radiodetectives. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.